Hello and welcome back to the Marvelous Cinema Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Matthew. And I'm your other co-host, Henry. And we're back this week to talk about film villains. Yeah. What makes a good villain? What yeah. villains do we particularly remember? Mm-hmm. Before we get stuck in, just a gentle reminder, gentle nudge in the direction of our Instagram, which is Marvelous Cinema Podcast. Mm-hmm. And on Twitter at Cinema Marvelous, we're doing reviews still. Mm-hmm. We're approaching the sequel era for Star Star Wars series. Controversial, maybe. <laughs> maybe we'll see. Half the yeah. internet will hate us; the other half won't be bothered. Oh, true. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, check us out on there for some good times. But mm, yeah, today's fun lies with film villains. Yeah, the big bads. Yeah. So, do, do you want to start off, maybe just a little general thing? Uh, what, what for you makes a great villain. Okay, um, I guess for me, uh, a greater villain, fundamentally at least, kind of has to be some some sort of um, a direct opposite of the actual protagonist in many ways. Uh, um, in the sense that I often find that villains and movies that don't um, literally like run into the protagonist in the sense that they are going directly against them. I generally find that the the conflict therefore doesn't feel as as like worthy of screen time in general. Um, so I always I always hope that when I'm watching a movie that the villain is treated like a an act the actual obstacle in itself to get over in the sense that the he, the hero or whatever um, their emotional journey relies upon the villain being there as an obstacle to get over. Um, so I feel like that's a fundamental sort of thing for me. Um, other than that, I just in, in general kind of think that having a sort of obviously a great performance as well, um, but also a kind of a, a kind of a maybe an empathetic sort of edge to them. I always respect that a lot more than just a straight up villain. Um, if I can maybe not sympathize or agree with the villain, but I can kind of like oh, that's why they're doing this kind of thing. I instantly think I instantly think that the show or movie or whatever is much better um, compared to a villain who was evil because he's evil or whatever, you know? You know um, and if your villain is going to be just evil because he's evil, I don't think it's a terrible thing, but I think you need to make it a larger-than-life performance in, in many ways mm. to be sort of attractive for a viewer other compared to just eye-rolling at the I'm going to destroy the world because it's me, the villain, <laughs> sort of thing. Um, yeah, what do you think about good villains? Um, I think I've, I've written down a few things. One of the things that I've written down is like symmetry to the hero, which is something you, yeah. you, you mentioned. But I've got, I think... I think the beauty of it is that you can also have quite a few different villains, like a different type of villain. Yeah, definitely. For different, uh, for different circumstances. There's things I've written down. Is I think you can have some that's pure evil. Yeah, you can. Like, and and one of the, one of the one of the, one of the villains I've got on my list, which we'll get to later when we start the list, or the not, the the examples we've got, is that like a villain that's not necessarily evil or good. Just that it's their nature, if that makes sense. Yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. So, and, and I feel that like can be one of the most terrifying things from a villain, particularly mm-hmm. horror villains. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I got sort of stuff like tormented, relatable, maybe charismatic. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the time it relies heavily on good dialogue writing. Yeah, I know, I feel like there needs to be a certain sort of like not generic lines or just I'm the villain sort of things. <laughs> mm, yeah, you have to have, especially if you're wanting to create like a menacing villain, I think mm. the way, way the villain speaks yeah. um, adds a lot to the, the impact, the initial impression you sometimes have. Yeah. Um, um, actress performance. And just the general aesthetic as well, because obviously a lot goes on with makeup and mm-hmm. clothing departments, costuming, that perhaps yeah. often under the radar, and they, they're just as important, I think. Yeah. I feel like a great example of a villain that is all kind of the the design and the performance is the Emperor from Star Wars. Mm, yeah. um, I is a is an all time great villain, but he kind of doesn't have that um, empathetic edge that we were talking about. Um, but he does have this. He is like the representation of all evil. <laughs> like um, mm. you're watching a scene with Vader and Luke or Rey and Kylo or whatever. You or Anakin. You just you know that he is the worst of the worst in terms of how these characters could go, um, which sets a good benchmark for like the, where the scene could go. Um, and his manipulation is a great sort of villain tactic that I appreciate a lot compared to just killing people because they're in the way. It's more of a, I will take over your father and like make him the bad guy, which is far more, it's far more menacing when you think about it in that way. Um, and yeah, I feel like villains that are going to be just I am evil should be um, the the sort of benchmark for the entire experience of what could happen in a certain way. Mm. Yeah. So do, do you want to get into our mm-hmm. examples that we've got? Yeah, do I mean, am I going first? Yeah, you go first. Go on, launch yourself in. Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean... Uh, okay, so I'm gonna say, and ha- you, have, you haven't seen The Boys yet, have you? The TV show, I have not. I'm gonna watch it okay. uh, when I finish the work. Okay, I'm gonna not spoil anything, I'm just gonna give a general sense of what's so great about this character. Um, Homelander, um, mm-hmm. have you seen like this character, like in general? He's the, the blonde superhero, the Superman type guy, yeah. He? Yeah, he's kind of like the leader of the superheroes. Um, and without getting into any sort of like specific things, I think that anyone who's seen him kind of would agree with me that he is a tremendous villain and he is insanely like in timely for like 2020 or 20 or whatever. It's just a, a villain that is he's so kind of like a perversion of like what we expect from everything that we know about that sort of archetype um that it's constantly even like two seasons in now but like i it's constantly like um just like terrifying the things that he will do um and the fact that he is so powerful and so many things like that but getting into the thing we were saying before that there is even though i don't and sympathize with him and I don't want to see him I don't I have no desire to see him be redeemed or anything like that. Um I do from the TV show understand the way he is and like why he's that way. Um the show 
it gets into his backstory, but also treats him like an actual character and not like the villain, if that makes sense, even though he is the villain. Uh, so this show, this show for the majority of its entire thing is um, is against the superheroes and especially Homelander. So the show kind of takes the viewpoint off the boys, like the characters of the, the people that are going against the big corporate superheroes. Um, but it's the show is kind of like 50 50 split on what it shows like the in like the internal lives of the people of these people um so we will actually see homelander do these horrible things and then go to see him when he's at home or in the office or whatever and see the sort of this messed up things that have occurred to him and made him so just so not human like he it doesn't really have a soul. <laughs> it, there's like nothing within him. Like the emperor, like you were saying, there's like just nothing within him. And when the show does sometimes play with your empathy with him, when you kind of see him maybe be not the worst person in the room, which is rare, <laughs> it it's kind of like oh maybe. And then you, and then I keep on going. Oh no! But he did all of these terrible, horrible things that I. I generally like spe- like spend my time awake thinking about how terrible it is because he does some horrible things. Um, without spoiling anything, um, me, a person terrified, terrified of flying, um, like in planes, um, there's a specific moment in season one that I, I've never hated the character more than Homelander in that scene. Um, I have never hated the character more. Um, and he is, and I think... Uh, time will prove and kind of make him a staple in pop culture as one of the greatest villains we've ever had. Honestly, um, he's gen, gen- oh, he's so good. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> I feel like that the the idea of Homelander, um, from what I do understand, having not seen the show, he's like everything that Brightburn should have been. Mm, yeah, I haven't seen Brightburn, but I've heard mixed things yeah on. same have you seen it or not i haven't seen it right i i, I didn't I, I wasn't completely sold on on the idea of it for brightburn but i think in the boys it's, it's a concept that having seen memes and seen everything on social media it's something that has really intrigued me and i can't believe i've not i've just taken me this long to get around to doing it mm. i was the second yeah. season been it's i would say it's stronger than the first season because I do enjoy the first season a lot, and I was generally like on. I was on board for the entire show from the first season going forward. But season two, there was something about it where I felt like it. Season one was very much an introduction to the world, and it had its own story, yes, but it was mostly kind of a setting the tone sort of thing. Um, and I feel like season two allowed the show to breathe a bit more and just allowed it to be like. Like I was saying before, how it was a the show is kind of a 50 50 split off. You see the boys, Billy the Butcher or Huey, um, in their normal lives, and then see them in the plot doing these edgy, uh, gory things. <laughs> and at the same time, you see the superheroes do what they're doing in their offices on their like corporate headquarters or what what like what she got secret lives that they live under the public eye. Um, and the the show isn't isn't uh, um, 
how do you put it it's not like it's not just a black and white sort of thing of like these are bad these are good um from what, there is bad yeah mm-hmm. from, from what i understand doesn't one of them or doesn't one of the superheroes go and join the boys or something Mm, yeah. I've seen a loading, yeah. you know, it's that video game, um, well, not video game, the game with the imposter thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I've seen loads of memes with that, and mm. one, of the, one, of the, one, of the, one of the superheroes is the imposter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, um, like, wishy-washiness with the characters <laughs> in the sense that at any point, I could believe that one person that we assume is good could go too far, or one person who we assume is just bad because they are they are the core people are could like gain a soul in a sense. Um, and the show, it, it's just it's very weird because I think it's came out at the exact right time. Like it's mm. so I, I it's almost on the nose how on like timely it is. <laughs> and I'm not just talking about. The fact that it's a superhero show and it's the favorite genre at the moment. It's also because the show is so steeped in the ideas of America and it's obviously it kind of runs further than America, kind of the same thing here in a lot of ways. Um, but the idea of this, the wealth you get, wealth like more wealth and people that aren't in the in the dominant ideology kind of get stepped stepped up, yeah, stepped up, yeah, stepped on, um, and the corporate sort of factors kind of lie to us and kind of pretend to be on our side and can easily be something else behind closed doors um i don't know if you heard this character yet but stormfront is a new character in season two she's the um dark haired woman yeah yeah and she is perfect she is maybe on par with homelander in some ways you are a horrible person and you've tricked every you've tricked everyone um using social media and stuff I- ideals that everyone especially the youth of today are striving towards to gain popularity but behind closed doors be something much more terrible um and it's yeah it's almost on the nose sometimes i, I won't lie sometimes i do watch a show and kind of kind of groan with like oh that's just you're just too edgy right now <laughs> so <laughs> um but for the majority of it, it's just a well-written show and it it cares so deeply about what it's talking about that I can't deny that it's it's constantly interesting and at its best it's generally like emotionally heartbreaking sometimes um because the characters like of the boys I do care about a lot like they are well-written developed characters who have interesting lives and dynamics and arcs that are going on but yeah, Homeland is just something else at the moment. Like <laughs> he's great. Uh, yeah, do you want to move on? We can do. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've got, I've got, I've got a nice lengthy list. Okay. Uh, to go from. Um, I'm also going to go for a TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, you've seen Breaking Bad, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. Good. <laughs> I'm, I'm bringing forward my off. My first offering is. Uh, Gustavo Fring. Oh, okay. Who, uh, to describe my relationship with Breaking Bad, <laughs> <laughs> I I think it's a fantastic show. Mm-hmm. But I think it only achieves that fantastic level in through its uh, final two seasons. Oh, okay. In that, 
the 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 way it handles it and the way that the it keeps going. Like a lot of shows, they have that really great first few seasons. Yeah, and then maybe they maybe maybe, maybe they don't they don't build on it properly, mm-hmm. or not not they don't, they don't necessarily peter out. I'm not saying they they drop off in quality, but maybe they the plateau. Yeah, in that they sort of level off. There's no continued elevation, and I think one of the reasons that Breaking Bad is held in such a high esteem as it is is because it keeps that trajectory. Yeah, and ends when it hits its peak. Oh, it definitely does. Yeah, <laughs> um, and part of that, and, and and when I say that is, I'm not meaning that I don't like the first few seasons. I think the first few seasons are fantastic, mm-hmm. but it is that those last two seasons that are god level. Yeah. And part of that is that I feel like in the second to last season you have Gus Gus Fring, mm. who is the perfect villain. <laughs> yeah, there is there's there's no, and it's it's part of everything that we've already talked about. It's the yeah. actress performance because Giancarlo Esposito is, oh, he's very good. What yeah. what a, what a what a stone cold. Yeah. <laughs> Tormented, not to say tormented, but that that flicker. I mean, I think there's one episode where it has like a little flashback, mm-hmm. and that that's just the that's just the, oh, you know, oh yeah, 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 the cherry on top of the cake. Yeah. But it's just it's just the the stone cold delivery of the dialogue, mm-hmm. and the the straight to the point dialogue itself, mm-hmm. and the fact that you have his presence being like. This is probably what Walter White's going to end up becoming. Yeah, yeah. Like you can see that, and this is this is like Gus Fring is the worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. And you know, you build, you build, you're building Walter White up to have something like that. You know, Walter obviously works for for Gus, but they're leveling out a bit. And then spoilers for Breaking Bad, obviously. Yeah. But you have. Um, Walter White kill off Gus Fring. Yeah. And for me that, that that kind of thing where you've outwitted this absolute mastermind of a criminal. <laughs> yeah. You've you've outwitted the top dog, you know, you're sitting on top of the pyramid. Mm-hmm. And that's the moment where you you think this is Walter White at his most evil. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's a through Gus Fring, you have that not necessarily an obstacle for Walter White, but you have this landmark mm-hmm. yeah. where outsmarting him, beating Gus Fring, he's at the top. Mm-hmm. He yeah. is the most evil of evil criminals at this point. Yeah. And yeah, and so Gus Fring is always one of the ones. When we talk about TV villains specifically, but I just think. He's 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 a good villain in all the typical like aesthetic and dialogue and crowd pleasing moments, but he's mm. also one of the best villains in terms of his relevance and importance to other characters and the plot and his importance to the protagonist. Yeah, um, I I definitely agree with this. Like for, like I love that villain so much, and I I don't think we mentioned uh, mentioned this before, but um, the Dark Mirror sort of antagonist is sort of mm. prevalent, especially in superhero movies but and whilst i don't think it's the strongest archetype for a villain i do think that with a tv show we have time to give them motivations 
um, it could work out really well. And that's what we have with Gus, I think, is a villain who is a dark mirror to Walter White and is also a well-motivated villain and an incredible performance. Um, and I, will, I will never forget that one of my favorite moments in Breaking Bad is, yeah, spoilers his death, but also once you overcome that villain and then when in that last scene of a kind of a twist sort of thing where you kind of realize that to kill Gus we've created something much worse with Walter White. Um, yeah, because he poisons um, the he poisons child. Jesse's partner's kid. Yeah, yeah, it's and the fact that the show built that up and it had hints towards it, and you sort of known, and it's the confirmation of what everyone was hoping wouldn't happen to Walter White, but it you kind of saw it coming, but didn't want it to happen. Um, I I think that's one of the best episodes of TV or movie, whatever thing I've ever seen in my life. And I feel like it comes from so much well, well-told well story with Gus and his sort of parallel sort of arc with um, Walter White. So, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. He's a great villain, definitely. Because mm. like I said, with that flashback scene, you have a slightly different Gus in that flashback where he is very similar to the point in which Walter White is at. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's like Walter White in the um, season one, you know? He's kind of like yeah. that. Um, yeah. Uh, and to talk about, like, comparing seasons, I have a weird thing with Brick and Bad in the sense that I do love the entire show and adore the last, like, two seasons as well. But I have, like, a weird nostalgia for the first season, even though I, I watched it all together for the first time, like, two years mm. ago. Yeah, I don't know why it is, but the first season for me is so nostalgic, and I only watched it two years ago, and I think it's because at that point the show was getting started, and I feel like for me that's when the show was at its funniest. <laughs> it's sort of like a weird thing, but I never I used to watch it with um, uh, my mom, and we used to watch it together because um, we were bored, <laughs> and we would laugh so hard at that first season because it's so like like deadpan dry humor for the majority of it mm-hmm. <laughs> um and i i think the show i wouldn't say it lost that i think it's grew out of it um but i do feel like the first season is so weirdly nostalgic for me um but yeah it's a great show and that yeah gus is great <laughs> yeah do you have another film um right so i'm gonna talk about a villain that I really, really love, and I think he's unfairly threat, um, Bane from The Dark Knight Rises. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, this I, villain... Yeah, say before, um, I feel like I should mention, um, just because we don't necessarily mention the, the big dogs, mm-hmm. doesn't mean we're ignoring them. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. So I feel like if, if, if we spent like, the whole episode talking about like, Heath Ledger, Joker, and Darth Vader, mm-hmm. yeah. we wouldn't really be saying anything new. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, oh, obviously we, we might reach them. We might talk about them. Yeah, I have Joker down, but I'm I'm not sure I'm going to get into it because like I can't add anything new to that conversation. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, so yeah, sorry, um, Bane. Yeah, Bane. Um, so for Bane, I always I can't figure out what the popular opinion is on him. I can't figure it out. I can't tell people. I'm making fun out of him or really like the villain, but just kind of think that the voice is kind of funny or if they 
hate the villain or love him or think he's, he's just fine. I can never tell the general opinion on him. Um, I love the voice. I I love the voice. And I I can't get over how good that voice is, actually. <laughs> um, um, but for me, he's a great villain because if we're talking about the trilogy as an entire one um, arc in terms of like an overarching story, I feel like Bane as a villain is a fulfilling promise of the entire trilogy in the sense that in the first movie especially we get the Ra's al Ghul sort of character trying to incite fear and chaos into the world because he feels Gotham doesn't deserve to deserve to live anymore essentially um, and in the Joker we get even an even higher sort of more sourcely adept sort of villain who is trying to incite chaos through people kind of um, losing their way in a lot of ways. And he kind of wins with Harvey Dent. Um, and then going into Dark Knight Rises for me, I feel like we finally get a confirmation and and a rebuilding of Gotham's soul from fulfilling the promise of a chaos in Gotham that has ruined people's souls to the point where the rich, uh, the poor eat, kind of like destroy the rich, and the rich kind of get treat like the poor orphan, and and there's all sorts of riots and prison breakouts and bridges blown up and stealing and homeless people and all this sort of things are happening with Bane being introduced, um, and we find simultaneously the idea of. Gotham being burned to ashes because he doesn't deserve it in the in the opinion of Ra's al Ghul. Plus, we get the Joker sort of trying to poison everyone's souls, sort of thing. Um, and I feel like a quote from I think Tom Hardy himself was um, the Joker wanted to watch the world burn. Um, Bane is here to pull the pin on the grenade, um, which I feel is the perfect way of putting it. He's just a force of nature who brings with them everything we've always feared was kind of true based off the 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 philosophies or theories of the previous villains mm-hmm. um, and with that of course we get a great it's a great performance i can't get over how good tom hardy is in that role because he's so physical and he's so much of a brute and his eyes tell an entire like an entire story and there's so many moments of him being quite soft as well that a few people forget about mm-hmm. there's quite moments where bane is like Kind of like, I'm the guy, and I'm happy that this child has got a good singing voice, and I'm happy that I'm in the corner knitting a needle, like <laughs> you know. Um, it's just a thing. I like. It's a fun, like, did you know sort of fact. Like, there's a scene in Dark Knight Rises in the corner where Bane is just knitting a scarf or something like that, um, which is lovely. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just a the performance for me is just beyond perfect in so many ways and I feel like obviously it was unfairly sort of I don't want to say criticised but I want to say it was unfairly put up against the heights of the Dark Knight and and that villain um, which is completely fair enough obviously but at the same time don't let that overshadow what you're seeing with this one film that's got a lot, lot, got a lot of good stuff in it and is for me at least a great movie um, and Bane, I just think he's one of the best films we ever had in comic book genre or whatever for the past 10, 20 years. Um, he's perfectly written in a lot of ways. And 
I feel like people, if people like Ben and then didn't like him, I think like it's because in the end they kind of have that reveal that Talia goes an actual kind of mastermind behind it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and whilst I would agree, I don't love that twist. I think it's a bit, it's a bit kind of unnecessary. I don't really need it to be there. Um, I think it kind of weakens Ben overall when you look back at his actions. Um, but I don't think it completely takes out. I just think it just makes him weirdly more sympathetic and therefore a bit less menacing. Um, even though that's what I usually like having a sympathetic villain. So it's a weird thing, but I do overall love this villain and I can't get over the weird conversation around him that I can't fully understand <laughs> for some reason. Um, yeah, How do you feel about I, I think he's a really enjoyable... On, on surface level, he's a really enjoyable villain to watch. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Tom Hardy is an actor that can convey a lot of charisma, and to be able to do that through a mask and just with his eyes is even more incredible. Yeah. Um, I, I, I will concede that I think there are points where it's very difficult to hear what he's saying. Yeah, that's true. But most of the time, it's really some great dialogue and great delivery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I feel very similar about the twist in that it kind of undermines Bane a little bit. It does a bit, yeah. Like you, you see it quite a lot where you sometimes have you have this villain built up, and then there's like a twist at the end that makes them all sympathetic, mm-hmm. and it kind of makes you think. It kind of looking back, think, oh, <laughs> maybe you weren't that amazing all along. Yeah. I think I think Bane manages to avoid that just about yeah i feel like he's not tied directly to that twist as a character if that makes sense mm, no he's not um and i think he's still just as credible knowing the twist mm-hmm. and going back but again it's one of them ones where it's a very simplistic costume design yeah it's a really effective one. Oh yeah definitely he's he's just a massive absolute unit of a human being <laughs> who yeah. you know can also he's not just like a, a wrecking ball of a man he's also like a trained trained tank <laughs> yeah, like, a trained, like he can he, he has finesse and technique and that's how he can defeat batman mm-hmm. and there's the the parallel in that movie which is the main reason the main reason that i really love that third movie in the trilogy is the whole idea of Bruce Wayne wanting to die and his ideal of life now is to end it all with some sort of self-sacrificing sort of mission. Um, and I I love the idea that without the, um, the need to live, you lose all fear and therefore you lose all meaning in what you do. And I feel like Bane is a perfect sort of opposite to that headspace that Bruce is in because he's so motivated and so he's so idealistic of what he believes to be true. Mm-hmm. In a, so I feel there's a great scene where Alfred says to Bruce Wayne in the back here something like, um, "Look at look at look at him take down these five different people. That's not just great training and all this. That's that's like heart. That's spirit. That's like ferocity. That's being built from birth. That's not mm-hmm. what you are, Bruce. That is especially now when you're." you've lost Rachel and you're doing nothing, you're a hermit and you, you've got a broken leg and all these sort of things. Um, and I feel like having him 
be there as a be there as a a kind of like a guy a measuring guide of like has Bruce Wayne regained his soul and ability to want to live um is a great use of a character to be an opposing force to the actual story being told mm-hmm. uh, and yeah overall I just I think in general the villains in the Dark Knight trilogy are all perfect sort of villains I feel like they're all written so well um yeah I think and- that's the beauty of them is that they are they use to perfection in terms of mirroring Bruce's journey yeah definitely I I kind of miss the days where uh superheroes superhero movies were kind of based upon what the villain was going to be or that movie um because I I kind of miss it when you would see a new comic book movie and the villain was kind of the big the big thing and I feel like the good ones would make that big thing like a Doc Ock or the Joker or whatever become the main sort of obstacle of the entire thematic meaning of the movie in a sort of way. Mm. Um, and I do kind of, I think we still have that, but I just think it's weirdly not so much of a big deal. Like we've had so many Marvel movies that are, we always kind of go, oh, the movie was great, but the villain was kind of, eh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I think quite a lot. Um, yeah, so. I was going to say, you also have the case of a lot of films now using multiple villains. Yeah, these a lot. <laughs> yeah, Which sometimes sort of dumb it down a bit. Like, um, if if you're hearing, oh, we've got we've got so and so in this upcoming film, yeah, and then oh, we're also getting so and so. Yeah, it feels that like you don't have enough time to focus on that one villain and make him as relevant as possible. Mm-hmm. I feel like a great um, time difference sort of example is, and I don't think one's good, one's bad, and automatically whatever i just feel like it's a very good difference um like obvious difference in the sense that if you go to spine one three there is three villains in that movie um and you go to homecoming there are three villains in that movie that are comic, comic books sort of like icons um you got the tinkerer um uh, uh what do you call them the vulture um and shocker so it's mm-hmm. kind of like three pretty big villains um and similarly spine one three you got venom Goblin and Sandman, um, but the way they handle the way they handle the characters in Homecoming is very much sort of like Easter egg sort of thing. Mm, yeah. uh, Vulture is the villain, but the rest are sort of like ah, they're in the background. They might come back later for another movie, you know, sort of thing. Um, and it's definitely it's working. Like I want to see more of them. I want to become characters later on, maybe, but. Um, and they don't get in the way of the story the way that Spider-Man 3 has that problem going on all the time um, so it's definitely a difference but I just kind of miss it when the villain defined the entire story in the sense that it would define the conflict overall um, yeah I feel that's a great sort of example of what Bane is and the Joker is and <laughs> Raz al Ghul and all these sort of things um, yeah <laughs> do to move on? yeah we can do mm-hmm um, for something different, mm-hmm. I'm going to go with a monster. Oh, okay. This is the only kind of monster I have on my list. And it is the Xenomorph from Alien. Oh, okay, okay. Now, the reason I've gone for this is because mainly because it's something completely different to all the other villains I've got on my list and will probably mention today. Mm-hmm. But it's what I alluded to earlier when I said the Xenomorph isn't necessarily evil. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, yeah, it's trying to kill everybody on the ship. 
and it is the the, the, the this great looming terror that annihilates <laughs> annihilates people. Yeah. But you also have the fact that it doesn't necessarily know it's evil. Mm-hmm. I mean, we never, and part of it is the fact that we never understand why it chooses to, to just kill people. Yeah. It's not like, because than... you have it with Predator, where it's here to kill people because it wants it for sport. Mm-hmm. It finds yeah. it entertaining, it wants to challenge, it wants the satisfaction of knowing he's beaten a worthy opponent. Yeah, with the xenomorph, there's no, there's no interaction with it. There's no talking to it, mm-hmm. and it's it's something sort of, sort of similar to um, the Terminator. Yeah, in that it's just nature that's programming it to do these things, mm-hmm. and I just think that's the beauty of it. There's obviously no dialogue. Uh, it's true, yeah. <laughs> with, with the xenomorph, but it's also just the terrifying look of it. Yeah. It just looks all bony and thin, and then you have this massive, massive head. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just, it just sort of deals with sort of the abstract of it and it looking abnormal to terrify people, because obviously nobody's head looks that big. <laughs> it's abnormal yeah. for us to look like but it also it has that kind of skull look to it mm-hmm. yeah. top of the head and the way it smooths back and yeah. you have again over sort of the abnormal you have really thin limbs mm-hmm. and then this tail that i mean i don't think you fully get like the the horror of the tail have you ever seen or played alien isolation mm, no you know, have you have you seen anything from it? Um, I think I might have actually, but I don't. I haven't played it. But I think I think that's. I've never played it, but I've, I've watched. I've watched. I've watched Walkthrough, so you know, I'm I'm cultured. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but um, it's really well done in that game. In that, a lot of like you know, with with horror games as well, you have obstacles. You know, the the horror monster shows up. You shoot them for a bit. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about when we talked about The Last of Us. Yeah. There's the big the big beast the under the hospital. Yeah. It's you you run around, you shoot it for a bit and eventually it dies. Mm-hmm. Well in, in Alien Isolation you can't kill the alien. Yeah. And you can't even run from it. Yeah. Once you've been spotted you've 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 fucked it, basically. <laughs> You're done. Unless unless you get to like the second half of the game where you have the flamethrower and you can you can fight it off with a flamethrower, but even then you can't kill it. And <laughs> and sometimes you won't even know that it spotted you until randomly mm-hmm. you're walking down a corridor and it cuts into a, like a cutscene, a death animation, where the tail of the alien just protrudes from your chest. <laughs> and then a, like, you know, them really thin, gangly hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a hand reaches down from the top of the screen and covers the screen. Holy shit, that's cool. That's really cool. <laughs> I would wholly recommend watching it. Uh-huh. But that's sort of... It's just the whole design and the aesthetic of this monster wants to kill you, and there is no reason why. There is no yeah. stopping it. It's kind of a force of nature sort of thing. Um, yeah. And the entire, like, say, what do you call it? Like, the autonomy of the character, I guess, is it's all designed to kill you. Like, the mouth within the mouth, the tail, the hands, the... 
the way it can climb anywhere. Its blood is, its blood is acid. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, so you kill one in Aliens, for example, and you are likely to die because it will bleed on you. <laughs> um, like, there's no real winning, in a sense. Um, so when you finally do get a kind of a win in Aliens, the second one, um, or the end of Alien 1, it's kind of like a big relief, like the biggest relief, because it seems so undefeatable. Um, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, Aliens has used that well in that there's loads of them. Mm-hmm. I'd say that probably the most terrifying shot in those two Alien films is when they're defending the, the central base in Aliens, mm-hmm. and they can see all the dots on the screen, and then one of them sticks the head through the air vent. Oh, yeah. And the way they're all just scuttling... <laughs> Yeah, like they're all just coming, and they, they all just know where they go somehow. You don't even know how. <laughs> um, yeah, like you see like loads of them, and like he's got a flashlight on his helmet, and the way the light just shines off their heads. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also, it's one of those sort of Jaws things where you don't really see the full design for the entire mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. Um, to the point where, obviously, when you, I think in the first movie, where you kind of. For like a bit, kind of like a two-second shot, I think, you see the full suit. It kind of goes, oh, okay. <laughs> it's kind of like one of those things. Um, mm. but yeah, I do it feel feels like, like the head's like the main thing you meant to see. Yeah. And like when you see its hands, you're like, oh, it's the hands? Oh. <laughs> like so. <laughs> um, and I love the fact that for the majority of it, you don't really see it. See it. Um, mm. And if we're comparing like the whole franchise, um, I feel like a big point of like oh this got so much worse in alien 4 where <laughs> the aliens are kind of like pets that are getting experimented on in a little lab and like they're controlled and everyone kind of treats them like little cool pets sort of things it's a weird weird way of doing a villain all of a sudden <laughs> mm. uh, i think yeah. one of the also things is why it's weird in alien covenant is it less cgi yeah yeah and it feels like less tangible it also feels like they can do too much all of a sudden. Like, you can see them in full broad daylight, climb onto the top of a ship, and then headbutt the glass or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's weird seeing it do so many things and seeing it do it all fully and, like, so smoothly, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, to, I mean, the th- I think the first time we see the alien in the first Alien film is, like, he's in the background in under under a skylight, but he's, like, hidden within, like, the chains, I think. Um, the idea of, like, you just kind of see it, or in Aliens, you kind of see for a two-second shot, or, like, climbing up- upwards. Yeah. Or they'll, like, they'll just grab you out of nowhere. It's a much better way of doing it than a full CGI daylight mm. thing. <laughs> like, in, like at the end of Alien, where it's hidden on the shuttle. Mm-hmm. And its head, it uses its big fuck off head in a unique way, in that it's just. <laughs> <laughs> it's hiding in the pipe. It looks, looks like a pipe. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, El- uh, Ripley turns around and it moves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also, speaking yeah. of its head again, mm-hmm. it has no eyes. Yeah, there's no kind of window into the, sh- into the soul, you know? Nothing <laughs> there. Like, yeah. Um,. Also, um, I was going to say something about Prometheus, I think. No. Oh, no, what I was going to say was I like the idea that it's, it's you see the entire life cycle of the entire, like, of, like, the alien. Like, 
Mm. Um, in the sense that in a, a Del Toro movie, you'll see the the sort of life cycle of a certain creature or whatever. Um, in Alien and Aliens, we kind of like see the entire the crab sort of thing, and then the chestburster, and then they become the full alien, and then all these sort of these other elements that come into Alien Three, and then there's Prometheus as well, and we kind of get to see the entire sort of like the entire backstory in, in a way of like how they're just made and then live their life um mm-hmm. and it's all terrifying <laughs> oh yeah very much terrifying <laughs> yeah it's like it's one of the things one of the things i bring it back to bread predator mm-hmm. if you were told like you're on this ship or you're in a certain environment and you you one on one with either a predator or an alien what would you choose mm. i'd choose a predator hands down yeah, kind of. <laughs> you just surrender and you'd be like, well, this isn't any fun. This is a fair game. <laughs> <laughs> What's the point yeah. in this? Yeah, like, there's like a kind of like a chance with the Predator, in a sense, but with um, with an actual alien that has nothing nothing to talk to. It's, <laughs> it's yeah, no, no good. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to move on? Yeah, we can do. What's uh, okay, so... I it's me it's me Henry Murray I, I like Spider Man too <laughs> <laughs> I I couldn't not go through this let's not mention Doc Ock in some sort of way um, oh. so yeah Doc Ock in my opinion a great villain for many reasons and I feel like the main reason and probably the most obvious reason is the fact that he is a very sympathetic character he is mm-hmm. he has a wife he has a work life he has a kind of a fatherly sort of relationship with Peter. Uh, um, he is, like we said before, like the idea of like a dark mirror. In this case, like a very good mirror in the sense that he's like, he is the best of what Peter Parker's life could be. He has a balanced life. He has a, he has a wife. He has like Mary Jane of his life um, there for him. He is fulfilling his dreams of um, being responsible with his gift, which is in his case, science. Um, and when you think back to that movie, there's only there's only really two kind of half three scenes, two and a half scenes where we kind of get the life of Doctor Octavius outside of the the idea of him having eight limbs, you know. Um, and it's it's incredible that in only three, two and a half scenes, we kind of get really efficient storytelling in the sense that we kind of get everything that we need to know about him, but also it's quite emotional like seeing him seeing him work with peter and kind of not not kind of um be mean to him but kind of not take his bullshit off uh i'm busy with whatever and he's like no being busy is not enough like you gotta you have a gift give it to the world it's a privilege um to have this and it's something you need to work on um and it strikes hard with peter the idea of this character being so in tune with his his balance of life that it becomes like a maybe for Peter, for Peter it becomes kind of like maybe I can have it both ways of like I can get what I want and do what I need to do um which is you know be Spider-Man and um be with Mary Jane do something that makes me happy and do something that makes me a better person in a sense um and it's sort of like a great sort of wow this could I could be this guy Dr. Octavius so when we see that incredibly well directed scene um, where 
he his wife dies and his dream collapses and on itself and he loses his sense of self in a lot of ways, Dr. Octavius. And that incredible scene where he wakes up in the hospital and this horror sort of this horror freak show kind of happens. Um and it's it's simultaneously like inf- like incredible to watch, but also kind of like just oh what a what a fall from grace. Like what a like an absolute like oh my god, this went so bad. <laughs> um like his dream caused so many bad things, including the death of his wife, and he's kind of become enveloped in the idea that he can achieve his dreams now. It's not mm-hmm. just a balance, it's more I will get what I want for what no matter the cost. Um to the point where he knows full well that you know his sufficient energy sort of uh, scientific promise was kind of the reason that so many bad things happen to him and the reason that he's even in the situation that he's in but he can't let it go and I feel like that's the great parallel to Peter in the sense that he can't quite let go of his dreams or the idea that he can do better or that he should be better or and it's conflict of what should I do with my life um, and Doc Ock kind of represents this sort of very um self-serving i can i can get it all back i can do it all so mm. and yeah it's it's heartbreaking to watch but it was also just a great performance from alfred Al, alfie alfred molina alfred uh, alfie. alfie there we go um <laughs> it's like a great performance with him because it's so human but also so ramy broad and operatic sort of thing when it needs to be like he can he can, he can play that the dinner scene or whatever, completely straight and be completely uh, um, um, subtle with what he's doing. But when it comes to of him being the villain and he is he is uh, merged identity with being Doc Ock, um, having him talk almost to the camera in this big loud speech where he's going to he's going to fix the world and I'm going to get it all back. And it's it's him having this internal monologue, but but like he's by himself in a cave. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. It's so like over the top kind of comic booky, but it's all kind of like but I get it. <laughs> it's it's an incredible mix. I can't get my head around it still, like how I on one hand can say that this movie's so deep and kind of personal and subtle, but also go, but it has it has a man with four metal arms talking to himself in a cave and about and about how he's gonna rob a bank. <laughs> and I'm kinda of like these things they they're both the same in this movie. <laughs> like I, I get it. Um yeah, and I think he's a great villain overall, and he's visually he's he's achieved very well by a lot of practical effects mixed with CGI. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you ever seen it, but have you ever seen like the Doc Ock arms in real life like move by themselves? It's no. so it's so cool. Um, oh god, it's so cool. I remember uh, as a kid watching those films. Um, it it being really one of the things that stuck with me from a young age was when you know when he they tried to remove them, remove the arms. Yeah, yeah. In surgery, and the arms just just destroy the surgery team. Murder, murder many people. <laughs> um, in the most Sam Raimi way possible as well. Um, it's yeah, I can't. I could go on forever, but like this is a great villain for me, and I I really just love him <laughs> overall. Yeah, you can we can move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I agree basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well designed. You, you also have that with most of the Raimi villains in that there's a lot of heart in the character. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where maybe if they had survived, you could still see them being mates. <laughs> yeah, in you a can, way. Yeah. And also the way that uh, the thing that I love about this movie, for many, I mean, there's many things, but also um, the fact that the way that we win, I guess, is we don't like punch Starcock into the into submission or whatever. <laughs> like we kind of Peter Parker talks to him and just kind of just through pure just being empathetic kind of just reaches a part of him that was we thought was long gone and he becomes the person we know he could have been and was at one point and mm. he self-sacrifices himself to destroy his own dream to save everyone else and not only is that loaded with like so much subtext and all these other things and so much um meaning meaning you could you could apply to it but also just the fact that the idea that we didn't we didn't just punch him until he stopped. He stopped moving, you know. <laughs> so, mm. um, is is just great to me, and I love this fucking villain so much. <laughs> <laughs> great stuff. Yeah, we can move on. Okay, um, I'm kind of gonna go for two in one. It's a bit cheap of me. Mm-hmm. Um, but same director, right? Similar films, so similar types of villain, I should say. Uh huh. And I'm going for Colonel Lands, uh, Hans Lander mm-hmm. and Calvin Candy from Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained, respectively. <laughs> right, okay. So Tarantino villains. Mm-hmm. These two people yeah. are horrible characters. Horrible characters, yes. <laughs> they are, in their respective universes, they are probably the worst people to have ever existed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, and the way that, that Tarantino is able to write such horrible people is a little bit scary. Yeah, it's kind of like... <laughs> <laughs> but the way... What's, what's perhaps even scarier is the way that they are almost mesmeric. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in the way they speak despite the fact that they're often saying horrible things. Yeah. It's like um it's like all the all the jokes and the memes about that um pumped up kicks song. <laughs> you know, it's like the yeah. tune's really hopeful and the lyrics are really miserable. Yeah. yeah. And it feels like that way sort of paying attention to the way they're speaking and not necessarily what they're actually saying. Because mm-hmm. if you did you'd you'd you know it'd send a shiver down your spine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and the way that through the way they speak, it 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 makes them almost the way they speak and the charisma with which they speak is how it stops them from being cliched evil villains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I think it re- they rely a lot on the performance of the actor. Oh, definitely. Yeah, you know, two of I was going to say not just two of the current generation's finest actors, probably two of the finest actors to have ever been on screen. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> in um, Christoph Waltz and Leonardo DiCaprio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And particularly with, with Hans Lander, you have this, he's, he's a great sort of charismatic, yet socially awkward in a way. Mm, yeah, kind of. The way that he can dominate a conversation despite being a little bit socially awkward is perhaps the terrifying thing. Yeah. 
because he he has that power in the conversation because he just has that power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and he also works as a pretty good example of of you know Hitler in real life. <laughs> yeah. He's doing and saying all these horrible things. Yet he's he's he. If you look at most lists for the greatest villains ever, you've got Colonel Hans Lander in there. Oh, definitely, yeah. The fact that he's captured the the imagination is very. Also, with Calvin Candy, you have that reflection of real life, mm-hmm. and that people people say people follow people that say horrible things. Yeah. Because those horrible people have found a way inside people's heads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Like it's it's how Hitler got to power. Mm. Um, and I'm 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 sure if we were interested in modern politics, there are several people we could talk about. He's <laughs> very but, easy, yeah. <laughs> um, but you have that thing where he he appeals to that worst nature and. It just you, you can see why people follow them, and you can see why this guy is uh, an SS colonel, mm-hmm. and yeah. you can see how this other guy is this massive slave owner. Yeah, um... and also they present this significant obstacle, perhaps more in Django Unchained than in Glorious Bastards. You have this sense of this guy is the pure evil that Django must overcome. Mm, yeah, you have the personification of everything that has caused Django pain. You have this physical manifestation of racism, basically mm-hmm. racism yeah. and slavery, and all the characters that surround him, the way in which characters act towards him. You have you just have this really complex idea of everything that Django is fighting, both physical and emotionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... I often find that the reason that the Tarantino villains, especially the two that we're talking about here, is the thing that lends the thing that lends well to them is the idea that they have so much screen time in the sense that they have when they're in the film, they have time to be in the situation and let that situation play out. Because um, Tarantino is kind of famous for that for like the whole entire thing where he can just have a scene that's just happening in a sense that. At one situation will last about twenty minutes. Um, so, like the, the dinner scene in, in Django is mm-hmm. a great example of, like that scene lasts a long time and it's the entire time it's so tense. Uh, but also, I feel like it's like you were saying before about how kind of like in, if we're paralleling, paralleling real life um, with Hitler and stuff like that. I feel like a great example is the idea that they clearly like the the villains themselves. Clearly set out a different villain in their heads to the to the audience and to like the main characters as a they'll say I'm not the villain these people are the villains and they will give you a clear target and he will like point you in that direction and then and then from that um, tell you complete and utter lies like complete and utter just nonsense but he will say it so confident in such confident ways that it's kind of like a speech about a scientist telling you why. You, you need to do something in order to stop something. It's that sort of thing. Like it's kind of like a, it's like hearing someone be immortal about something so scientific, even though it's complete nonsense what they're saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I feel like having a, an incredibly tense dinner scene or 
a tense um, scene in that little house and opening of a uh, Inglorious Bastards is mm. it gives them a stairs to be on for a bit to be the overcoming the um, obstacle that we have to overcome, and it allows you to kind of feel the the hatred that you have for the character, mm. <laughs> and also because you know uh, Candy doesn't come into Django until fairly late on. Yeah, it doesn't. No, yeah, uh, and yet you have you have him be able to command that presence mm-hmm. despite that. And also, even though even though you definitely know that he's not a good person, you like, you know it from the get go. I feel like with Candy, you kind of get like a a weird thing where the movie kind of doesn't confirm he's a villain quite yet. It's kind of, <laughs> kind of like he's charming, but he's not good. Oh, he's <laughs> kind of get he's getting worse. Oh, he's getting worse. Oh, the dinner scene. <laughs> like it's like <laughs> um, to the point where he's like smashing that skull sort of thing and doing all that sort of that speech that is incredible, but also you know terrible in a sense of like what he's saying. Mm. Um, and yeah, like that's they are all time great villains for many reasons, but I feel like them being this sort of just I don't know. They get these long speeches that are just they're so true to like what people easily kind of trust him because it's said so well even though what they're actually saying is just not true at all mm. um, it's what it's yeah they're great <laughs> but bad yeah. <laughs> and you also perhaps have this um fear and this nervousness or tension with particularly with Hans Lander but also you do get it with Candy in mm. that you know that there were actually people like that yeah definitely. it's not like you're off in space and a guy in all black with a, a red laser sword walks through the door. <laughs> yeah. It it's like you know you know from what from history that there were Nazis like that. Yeah. There were people that mowed down innocent Jews and you also sort of get it with Shin's list as well. Part of the fear and part of the tension is that it's very true and you almost feel a little nervous watching it. Mm-hmm. It's one yeah. of them things where you feel nervous and saying, oh, I enjoyed that film because of how perhaps close it is to real life suffering and real life pain. Yeah. Like you also have that with Candy as well because you you know deep down there were people like that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's a, great films really, aren't there? <laughs> mm. <laughs> a lot of ways. Um, Would you like to move on? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm keeping within like the superhero genre at the moment, and going for like I kind of want to say like an underrated villain. I don't really hear people talk about him that much. Um, Zod from Superman, not Superman, uh, Man of Steel. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I really, really like this villain, and I was going to go for um, Lex Luthor in Batman v Superman but I thought it was too far too soon you know (laughs) 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 Um, but with General Zod for me I find this incredible character in the sense that it's his motivations are so based upon actual like science if that makes any sense like he is he is um, he is literally born from a scientific process and what they are built from the ground up to be a certain role in society so people are people on Krypton are born to be farmers, scientists, or army people, or generals, or whatever. 
and General Zod is born to be a general in war and to protect Krypton and make sure Krypton keeps on living. Um, it's not just a motivation of like emotion; it is a factual thing of what he what he's built to be. Um, so having that villain be in a movie in which for the majority of it, Clark Kent has to choose between being a Krypton or being a human is such a great conflict to have. And I think having him, a few people often say that it's unnecessary, but I often feel like it's just a nail in the head of like what makes this character so great for me is him killing, um, Corel, is it? Um, no, Joel, Joel, mm-hmm. um, Clark Kent's dad, like alien dad. <laughs> um, and, it's like a nail in, in head, and like a nail in the head of like, oh, he is going to do anything he wants in order to do this one goal that he needs to do, um, and it gets even, it gets even better in a scene where he says to Clark Kent when he's like at his weakest, he says, "I um, I was I was your father's best friend. We were great friends. We were going to save Krypton together. We were going to prosper in a new age of technology and all this stuff." And he didn't do what I he didn't. We didn't end up seeing eye to eye. And I killed him. And he says, he gets close, closer to Clark Kent and he goes, and if I had to do it again, I would. And it's sort of like a, fuck me, like, you are, you you are good. <laughs> like, it's a great performance from Michael Sannon, but it's also just like, he's written so strong in a sense that I know the why, I know literally scientifically why he is the way he is, but also the fact that I know that he is the opposing force in the story of like, Clark Kent, or Superman, whatever you want to call him, Kal El, um, he wants to become more and more human. He doesn't see himself see himself as an, see himself as an alien, but he can't deny that he has he is an alien, and he needs to either be proud in front of the human race or not. And the entire movie is about that sort of different different opinions of how people will react to a new being that is much more stronger than everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and the movie, for the majority of it, is just about that conflict. And I feel like it hand, handles it very well. And I feel like having General Zod there being a force of just, we're bringing, we're literally bringing Krypton back. <laughs> we are literally going to, um, what do you call it? Transform? Trans? Terraform. Terraform. There we go. Um, we're going to terraform Earth into Krypton. Like, we are going to obliterate everyone's lives because Krypton is more important. Um, and having. It's a brutal moment, and I feel like it's a, it's a, it's bleak, it's depressing. Yes, it's all these horrible things, but it's also kind of a, I can't help but respect it as being there. The fact that Superman kills him at the end and mm-hmm. has, has to because, not because he's too powerful, but because he he threatens too much life, and he threatens to he threatens to um, make the public interest see Superman as a a villain who will eventually turn out to be all about Krypton and not about Earth. Um, and having that, his identity stripped away from him, which is very much human, from from Zod is too much for him to handle. And he can't, he can't let his this little family uh, die because of it. And he has to kill him. Um, and I just feel like he's a, he's a great, strong villain. And I just can't, I can't like just, there's something about him. He's just so motivated by what he's, doing there's something so like behind all i always go like you're terrible but like jesus christ you are motivated <laughs> like, I, 
<laughs> like I respect what you're doing, but like not what you're actually doing, you know. <laughs> Get um, stuff done. Yeah, he is. Yeah, um, I love the design of him as well. Like I find it, I find the idea that it's got like this, honestly, kind of horrible army haircut, but it, like it's so practical and so like not at all. There's no style to what he's doing. What, what like, at all? Flashy, is there? Yeah, yeah. There's nothing at all. Kind of like. He's doing it for some sort of identity sort of thing. Um, and again, him being kind of an army from a uh, general from birth and bred to be an arm, a soldier, having him be be um, exposed to Earth's atmosphere and therefore gain the Superman powers. And therefore, because he's built for this sort of thing, he can kind of get it under control in like two, like a day or two compared to. Clark Kent spending like 15 years getting used to it. I find it so kind of like, in a sense of like a villain that's more powerful than your hero, that for me was always kind of a great thing of like, he is, he's built for war and Clark Kent is built for having, being a nice guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I just love him. I really do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I completely understand that. Mm-hmm. I yeah, there are there are probably criticisms you could have of him being a little, I don't know, um, a little dull in terms of, as in what he looks like. I mean, mm, yeah, and yeah. but I feel like it, it's there for a reason. Like if he's yeah. a practical kind of person, a practical kind of villain. Yeah, and it's just the fact that, like you said about. It's like opposites and symmetry. Mm-hmm. He is the perfect villain for Superman to face at that point in time. Yeah. The ideas of the, the Kryptonian heritage, mm-hmm. as well as him wanting to protect Earth and wanting to have that morality in him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Zod literally pushes him to the edge and in a way just makes him break it. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's the perfect way to have this tone of Superman as well. Because... Mm-hmm. As we've spoken about in the past, we we love the fact that it's a perfect kind of hero in an imperfect world. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Zod is the perfect way to bring that out thematically and narrative-wise. Yeah. Um, and I feel like it's great that he is kind of the the inciting is an incident of uh, Batman, Batman, Batman v Superman in the sense that he, through his actions, destroys a lot of... Um, what do you call it? Metropolis. There we go, Metropolis. Um, he destroys a lot of Metropolis in this battle, and therefore that becomes the entire, the kind of at least base ground conflict of the next movie. Um, so I feel like even even outside of the movie, like he's in prim- primarily, he has like a, rip- a ripple effect that goes beyond his performance in this one movie, um, which I can't help. I can't help but like admire like a whole like a lot because like <laughs> he is. Yeah, I like. I can't get over how morbid it's like. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> and again, like I could, I can completely, I can completely see people saying that he's a bit one-dimensional in the sense that he has, he literally has one motivation. And he has one goal. It's not like a complicated matter of maybe he could do this. It's more literally like scientifically, he is one thing. Um, I completely understand some someone saying to me like he's a bit bland, um, but I think like you were saying for this movie he is perfect like opposing force um yeah that's all i have to say about him. <laughs> he's good 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 mm-hmm. do you want to move on 
Yeah, we can do. Um, oh, I don't know who to go for now. Oh, <laughs> so many options to choose from. Um, I really don't know. It's quite <laughs> the quandary. Really? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go for the comic book one as well. Okay. My first comic book one. Here we go. Um, William Stryker. Ooh. Okay. X-Men 2. Yeah. Um, so this guy swans up and basically tears the X-Mansion a new one. <laughs> yeah. Um, in X2. And it's just, I think a lot of this relies on Brian Cox as a performer. Yeah. Because he absolutely nails the... He nails the, the the composure in which he has in the scenarios in which he's put in throughout the film. Yeah. And also, he just... He feels like the the perfect villain to have following the first X-Men film. Mm, yeah. Like, the original, the first X-Men film, it, it's like a perfect introduction to... To the, the X-Men mythology, it's the X-Men versus the Brotherhood of Mutants. Mm-hmm, it's yeah. Magneto versus um, Professor X. Mm-hmm. Even though Professor X gets taken out halfway through. As always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as always. And even though it's from Wolverine's perspective. But, <laughs> yeah. um, and, but following on with that, to have Stryker sort of swan in, Mm-hmm. And you have this person who whose sole job is to basically manipulate mutants. Yeah. You have Xavier who wants to live in peace. You have Magneto who wants to go out there and get shit done. Mm-hmm. And then you have Stryker who is an enemy of both of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In every everything he does. Yeah. He's one of those where he feels evil. Mm-hmm. Through and through, yeah, definitely. Like this guy, this guy's got nothing but malicious intent, and he's out to, mm-hmm. he's out to act on it. Yeah. Um, and the and the fact that I, I love it in when you have like a superhero film, and you don't have the villain be somebody like you were saying about Doc Ock and that ending. Yeah, he's not somebody that the they have to beat up. Yeah, because he's not he's not like the best. He's, I don't think he has a fight scene. Not really. He's a slightly well built gentleman. Yeah. And the fact that it's a mastermind and everything he stands for, and this massive base that he has, which is just like a big stone, grey, concrete jungle. <laughs> and he has this, he has this like alternative to, um, I can't remember what it's called. I want to call it Cerberus. Mm-hmm. I can't. I, that's not what it's called, though, is it? Um, what do you uh, mean? The the big thing where that press Rex goes Cere- into and puts the helmet on. Cere- Cerebro. Cerebro. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. It has this alternative to Cerebro, mm-hmm. and it's filthy. <laughs> oh yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> Presumably, it has like millions and billions worth of government funding. Mm-hmm. Compared to, and you have like the X Mansion, everything's nice and clean. Yeah. 
Mm. It's white, maybe a bit of grey and blues. And you have Striker's base, which is just grey stone and filthy. Sewer pipes. Murky green. Looks like looks like looks like something's grown on the panel. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um and so you have this very comic booky villain. And most of the appeal does come from the actress' performance, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Brian Cox is he did a I always feel like he did like kind of a, a slimy performance if that makes any sense. Yes, he's slimy. Slimy. It's kinda of like uh he's he's evil and capores, but he's also kinda of like I don't like the words you're saying the way you're saying them. <laughs> like, ew. <laughs> um, Who's is evil? Yeah, and also I like the idea that his motivation is is based around the idea that his son was a telepath and he was ashamed of him and he thought that there was a cure to it. Like, a, he, when, he was, when, he sent, when he sent him to um, Xavier, he thought that he was going to cure him of being a mutant and not just help help him control what he has as power. Um, so I feel like having him be a so fundamentally sort of like um, he kind of just believes in himself as uh, the human race as being better in general um, to the point where he can't see the idea of someone else having any sort of gift being a positive potentially. Um, yeah. So him being so against it and then and then even using mutants himself did that sort of chemical drug he has to make make that control them um he only sees them as either tools to use or to be like exterminated um which is an insanely good like uh way of telling us what we need to know about his character of art mm. telling us um and also like just having him be like a weird mastermind but he's not not really kind of like that smart <laughs> like he like he has a great he has a good plan in place but like obviously, his views are so childish in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, yeah, he's. I really like that villain a lot, actually. And how do you feel about his re- like a constant reappearance in the series? <laughs> oh yeah, a- any appearance after Brian Cox just is. Mm. It feels nasty. It feels like a, <laughs> the best way I can describe it. It feels artificial. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, they did it in Origins Wolverine. And then Days of Future Past, and then Apocalypse again. <laughs> um, whenever I see him after the X Men Two, I always go, "Why? <laughs> like, why is he here?" I, I mean, keep forgetting he's in X Men Origins. Yeah, yeah, he's he's um played by a, an actor the same age, <laughs> but twenty years earlier, I guess. Yeah, yeah. the X Men continuity is not good, but also, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I would agree that this villain is very much a comic book, a comic book movie sort of like um, hype point for a lot of reasons. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you want to uh, do you want another one of yours? Um. Okay. My next one's kind of two in one, and but it's the same movie, so it's kind of like a both villains. Um, okay. I'm going to go for the Penguin and the Catwoman. In Batman Returns. Interesting. Hmm. Okay. So. Okay. I can't. It's weird because I can kind of explain in like a writing sense of like why I like these villains. But for me, 
for the most part, it's all like the style of it all. Like, <laughs> I love the designs. I love the performances. I love the music behind them. I love their secret layers. I love the costumes. I love. Oh god, it's so creepy and weird and Christmassy and dark and gothic, but also kind of camp and funny. <laughs> it's the penguin, especially for me, is kind of like a a weird thing. You didn't have, you didn't have to do this, Tim Burton. Like you didn't have to go that far, but you did. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. really cool. Um, having Diana Vito in that big round suit with those like sharp teeth, and he's he's constantly eating raw fish, and he's He's got dark black eyes, and he at the end he like he vomits black bile like at some point. Um, I just love it all <laughs> so, so much, and oh my god! And it's I kind of get into like kind of like I kind of can uh, get deep with it and kind of be like, uh he's kind of like a mirror to to Bruce Wayne. And he's kind of like a the orphan child, but didn't get what you think what you thought he deserved, and he kind of went the wrong way about it. Um, and I can kind of, especially with Catwoman, actually, I kind of can go deeper with Catwoman and kind of say that she is, she is definitely a great mirror to Bruce Wayne in the sense that she is definitely the, the exact same character as him, but just not um, quite as morally um, strong as he is. Um, like she does good things in general sometimes, but not for the right reasons. Um, and she's like kind of that anti-hero sort of more. And I love their conversations that they have all together in the movie where um, they talk about how they split down the middle and there's this dance scene where they kind of realise who, who they are to each other mm-hmm. and then realise yeah. that they can't have a life together. Yeah. And I love the idea that Batman Returns is definitely Catwoman's movie. Like, I think it's a Catwoman movie <laughs> in general. Um, I honestly love this movie so much. It's just like, I watch it every Christmas. I there's something so stylish about it all and I can't get uh, I can't get it out of my system (laughs) it's so good Um, but yeah for me it's kind of like it's all style for me with with these villains it's so the grossest of Penguin but also like the weird costume that's all kind of um, leather and stitching with cattle Woman, Mm -hmm. Uh, the fact that she's like constantly pale as well like really pale (laughs) Um, her hair at the end is very like Frazzle for some reason it's the design of all these characters is like the main thing of these movies the first four Batman, Batman movies and I feel like they nailed it in this movie because it's so Tim Burton but it's also so like you get to know everything you need to, you need to know from the design design of the character yeah. um, and the Penguin's lair is so so cool <laughs> the the abandoned um, the abandoned zoo, zoo and Catwoman's apartment. It's so I don't know. It's just like a well-designed movie to me that I can't be that critical of it. Even though I know it's not a perfect movie, like it's not really a Batman movie. It's not really a movie about anything deep. It's not got that much going on underneath the surface. But mm. it's the most Tim Burton movie <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, I just yeah, learned so much. It's so over the top. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel about them? Um, yeah, again, I just part of it is like a complete appreciation of the amount of effort and and detail that's gone into creating them as mm. spectacle in a way. 
Like yeah. their characters, but not characters. Characters. Their characters is in the sense that that's what they typically are, but they're treated like an action sequence in a way. Mm, yeah. It's all on. It's all on the performance. It's all on the direction. It's all on the the way they look and the costuming. Yeah. Um. And I, I would say I would say I probably prefer Catwoman. I do as well. Yeah. Not not that I dislike Penguin. I think Danny DeVito <laughs> gives it everything. He definitely does. <laughs> uh, nothing. Nothing's left behind. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I appreciate more Catwoman's importance to Batman. Yeah. And yeah. in the same way that she probably brings about the best part of Batman in Burton's Batman films. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the relationship between the two of them is probably, if I was to say the favourite part about Tim Burton Batman, I'd probably say that. Same. Same. Yeah. Um, it's, the, it's the point where we get the most depth out of, out of Bruce and Batman as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, also, the, 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 yeah, the dance scene where they realise who they are is, is brilliant. Yeah. It's also the first time that um, in those four first movies that we ever see a love interest be anything of importance to the actual story. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, I think we mentioned before in the Batman episode, but like every movie, they make a new blonde, a new blonde uh, romantic interest to be the entire point of like the arc for Batman. But mm. it's so shallow and not at all good but for the first time i feel like i feel like the only time it ever works for me is is in this movie where she's actually a character you know like there's actually something going on time where it doesn't feel forced yeah and if i if we ever do see michael Michael keaton come back to the role i would love to see uh michelle pfeiffer's catwoman come back i feel like that's kind of for me at least it's kind of intrinsic intrinsic to that Tim Burton Batman world mm. uh, and the fact that they spent so much money to get her back and get her in the suit again to have that last shot in the movie where she comes back to life um, I feel like that's kind of like a worse than money otherwise <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, yeah I kind of just I feel like it's just also the, the performance like I don't even think like it's a it's a definitely an over top performance but I do think it's actually like a, a, like a actually good performance like i do think um the scene that stands out stands out to me especially and i watch it like once a month because i love it so much is like that scene where um selena carter coming home from work and almost being killed by max Shrek, um uh destroys her entire apartment whilst like that tim burton uh daniel from music plays in the background and it's she's spray painting her entire apartment black <laughs> and making destroying these little doll houses and stuff like that and i think it's so weirdly like beautiful like how sad and i kind of like depressing it is but also kind of like kind of like um empowering but also kind of dark and weird and converting and uh it's so it's just a weird mix of a scene of like just like euphoric but also kind of like terrifying and uh, it's just a great for me i think it's my favorite scene in those first two tim burton batman movies i can't emphasize how much i love that scene i love it's so good <laughs> um but yeah i do feel like overall that's a great feeling i think penguin doesn't he doesn't even need to be there but he's there and i like him <laughs> um yeah he's just yeah i can't get over the villains in this movie because they're so stylish and so eerie in a lot of ways like they're gross as well like even Catwoman to a certain extent it's kind of gross like she eats a bit mm. 
she actually eats a bird. Like, <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just, just larger than life as well. Oh yeah, they are the largest they could possibly be. <laughs> like, it's. I mean, I think they they made the first movie and they had Jack Nicholson and they realized that with the villains they need, they need to do something big each time. And whilst it definitely became the entire the downfall of the series, I think is the idea that the villains were just going to be these one-dimensional cartoons. Um, I feel like this is the movie where it's a perfect mix of character and cartoon sort of effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also that kind of Tim Burton darkness to it all. Um, yeah, I love these villains a lot. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you want to move on? Yeah. I'm gonna have, I've, I've got two more. Okay. Maybe I've got... this one, then one after. Okay. I think I've got two, 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 yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> All right, so first one I'm going to go with, because I, I, I intend on finishing on a strong one. Right. We're at one of my strongest ones. Mm-hmm. Um, my second to last one, a bit of a wild card pick, and a bit similar to what you said about the Batman villains. Mm-hmm. You might not recognise him by name, but my my final villain is Karl Ruprecht Cronin. Who's that? <laughs> he is um, the villain in Hellboy, the first Hellboy film. Oh. With the spinny blades. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So... I've watched this film quite a lot. Mm, I yeah. adore the Del Toro Hellboy films, mm, even same. more so um, after the reboot. Because as as is well documented on this podcast, <laughs> I hate the remake with every fibre of my being. It. You despise it. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it. It's one of my worst ever cinema experiences. I mean, I hate it as well, but. I think you hate you hate, hate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so I really like these films. There's a lot of Batman I do like, mainly Ron Perlman. Yeah, but when I was younger, watching this, this guy terrified me. <laughs> so, for people yeah. who don't know, he's he's the guy in Hellboy with like all in black with the helmet, and he has them two blades that he spins about. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's sort of this just absolute tank that rolls through anything. <laughs> you can <laughs> yeah. fill him full of bullets and he'll keep on walking. Mm-hmm. Um, even more terrifying when they actually take all his armor off and he's this wrinkled, almost a rotting man. Yeah, he's yeah. full of machinery and he's full of like clockwork. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the again, it's one that doesn't speak, so we can. Like run off the dialogue and perhaps the performance, mm-hmm. um, but you have this. As the fight scenes are so well choreographed with him, yeah. But you just have this dedication and this craft gone in to the whole aesthetic and the presence of him. Mm-hmm. It's like when when you see him appear in a scene, it's like, oh no, <laughs> something's going, something bad's going to happen. Yeah, and that that's such a a basic feeling you have, but to get that right is sometimes 
a real challenge and to get it right to the extent to which they get this right in that it's a very del toro kind of character yeah like he's a man that's clockwork <laughs> he goes around shanking people he has no eyelids either like, there's nothing around his eyes and it's yeah. like, terrifying and this sort of this sort of I, I don't even know there are times where I just don't know how to describe del toro's style in these films Mm-hmm. Or Del Toro's style, or fantastical <laughs> horror, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, fairy tale like, horror. Yeah, and to have it is this this presence in the. He's not even the main villain, really. Mm-hmm. This guy's like a henchman. Yeah, he's he's the odd job of this film. <laughs> <laughs> but. It just leaves such a, um, a presence on you because of just how well designed it is. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know if you have any particular feelings about him either way. Um, I no, I really like him. I remember, I think my experience with Hellboy, the first one at least, is that I do think he's, he's like a standout memory for me. Because um, I have seen that third movie a lot since I went back to it. Um, but I remember even from childhood when I saw this movie like maybe once, the thing that stuck with me was was this character. It was all like this horrific, wrinkly clockwork man. He was in a black suit who had who could crawl anywhere and would just spin his blades about and just kill you in like one second. Um, and there was something so terrifying about him. I can't really. And I think like that's just like a weird thing that. And you're right in the sense that it's hard harder than you think to get it right in the sense that it's a basic thing to have a villain that's. Always in the room, therefore bad things gonna happen. And it can feel very generic when you just say it like that. Um but getting it really right is like a lighting in a bottle sort of things. Um and this guy definitely has that where like whenever I see him in a movie I go, Okay <laughs> it's gonna go down, so it's like something's gonna happen. Um and yeah, I just yeah, I would agree with you that he's definitely a stand up memory for me in these movies at least. Um yeah. Mm. Do you want to go to one of them? Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, okay, for me... Hmm, okay. I'm going to go for... Mm, I think I'm going to go for a, little, like, a similar one to you, in a sense that a scary one from your childhood. And it kind of sticks with you, in a sense that he's just a, such like a well-designed character. Um, I'm going to go for Scarecrow in Batman Begins. Interesting. Um, yeah, so going back to um, the Nolan trilogy once again, um, for me, Scarecrow as a kid terrified me. Like, terrified me. And I mean, like, full on, I would skip his scenes in the movie. Um, and today, even, like, even today, he's quite like a menacing sort of character. And I, yeah, I think if I get into the writing of it, like, again, similar to Nolan's movies in general. He's very much a very good stand-in for the theme of fear and the idea that fear controls Bruce Wayne's life and therefore defeating Scarecrow is kind of like taking control of it. Um, but also I like the idea from the movie that the film goes deep with it in the sense that it says that uh, fear can just be a tool used by those people that want to incite it. Therefore, Razal Ghul is controlling Scarecrow and is actually the real villain of the story. Um, and I think obviously there's a lot of thematic depths with the Nolan trilogy that you can go into but getting into like the idea of like 
my memory of this character. When I was a kid, like I was terrified, and I remember seeing the film, I loving it, and um, getting to his scenes, and like running out, running out of the room, and only coming back when I knew he was gone. Like I knew he was definitely gone. Because like something about him, him, that mask and that noose around his neck, and him just having the ability to like just make any character who seemed like a seemed like a pretty competent person become like a total mess um, was just terrifying to me. And um, having him at some point in the film kind of grow maggots and all these sort of things outside of his face through the theotoxin, and then setting Batman alight, and then later on having being like a person in that straight jacket and having the mask on with a fire breathing horse. Uh, <laughs> it, was an, it was always an insane Im- like imagery to me and I loved it, but also kind of like hated it. I, don't, I had to leave the room. <laughs> um, and yeah, in general, I also love the fact that he comes back in every movie. There's <laughs> a little cameo, Scarecrow. Yeah, he just, just appears, doesn't he? Yeah, it comes about, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think he's a well-written character and I think he's used very well. I- I feel like he adds add a lot to the movie. Um, but I also think that in general, he's just a great, um, terrifying childhood memory for me. <laughs> yeah, that's all I've got to say about him, really. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that one of the things, like for the Batman episode, I rewatched it. Mm-hmm. And I really felt the sense that this character's here with purpose and here with reason in terms of the wider film. Yeah. You know, he's, he's there because fear is the best way to introduce Batman. Yeah, compared to, like, Riddler in Batman Forever, who's not mm. there for any reason <laughs> at all. Uh, yeah. Um, you just, I just appreciate that, you know. Yeah. He's there for, like, a kind of a structural reason, in the sense that every act in that movie goes through a way that fear is used, used to incite chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like having him have his own little act and act I want to say act two or three um, is pretty great and then having Razal Ghul be the actual kind of villain who is not fear, who is fear itself because he is using it to grow fear from other people is I think a great, a really great idea and it greatly handled in that movie um, mm. yeah yeah you want to yeah can do so my last one. Mm-hmm. Going out of the bang. <laughs> um, we are going with Darth Maul. Oh, oh my, okay. And I am not talking Phantom Menace Darth Maul. I am mm. talking the Clone Wars and Rebels Darth Maul. I am right, you are. <laughs> <laughs> so every, every, everybody sort of knows Darth Maul. Every every person who perhaps hasn't even watched Star Wars, yeah, to the casual Star Wars viewer, will know who Darth Maul is. You know, he's the guy with the horns and the double blade of the lightsaber. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the most exquisitely aesthetically crafted characters in all of Star Wars. Definitely, yeah. Um, and then in Phantom Menace, you also have the fact that you know there's no. He's very much in line with, like I said, about the Hellboy villain. <laughs> yeah. In that there's no it's not necessarily a character there. Yeah. It's just like an aesthetic. He's kinda of like a force of nature that comes into the story every once in a while. Yeah. And but then you have you have in the Clone Wars 
a show which is probably the, the one of the best examples of just taking your time and approaching something with care and appreciation. Mm-hmm. Because it's definitely uh, Rebels and Clone Wars definitely feel like a labour of love. Yeah. Um, and perhaps one of the best examples is that Dave Filoni and the Clone Wars team have turned a remarkably aesthetic but 2D character mm-hmm. into one of the best and most tragic characters in the entirety of Star Wars. Yeah. And that's coming from a franchise that is full of tragic characters. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the fact that the fact that most fans or most people that have watched these films will only know Darth Maul as the flippy guy at the end of The Phantom Menace. <laughs> yeah. It feels like a bit of a crime. Yeah, I always kind of feel bad for him in the sense of like the pop culture opinion on him opinion on him because the clone wars it's just so good <laughs> it's so good yeah it just makes he becomes like this this guy who's survived for as long as however many years he has <laughs> on rage yeah and that's kept him alive and it's created him this grotesque spider-like bottom half <laughs> yeah and it's just, he's clinging on to rage, he's saying Kenobi. Kenobi. Oh, Kenobi. Kenobi. <laughs> um, and again, it, it's it's a great dialogue. It's a great performance from Sam Witwer. Yeah. It's a truly, truly beautiful performance, the, the line delivery. And he becomes, he, he picks himself up and he becomes what he believes is, is the answer to the Sith. He mm. believes he's the true Sith. And then he, he amasses his empire, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Just being badass. He's got his apprentice. Um, again, Darth Maul has, brings some of the darkest moments to the Clone Wars as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's like a point where he just slaughters a load of civilians. <laughs> yeah, he does. Just to get like... Obi-Wan's attention. Yeah. And there's also the scene where they go to one of the crime bosses and he makes Savage oppressed, like throw his double bladed lightsaber down the table. Mm, and yeah. it cuts all the heads off. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um but then you have at the end of that arc, you, you sort of have the perspective that oh yeah, this is cool. They've done some cool stuff with this character. Yeah. But then what happens after is perhaps the the the, the, the cherry on top of the cake. Mm-hmm. And that you address this idea, as he says, in Siege of Mandalore and other areas, that he was supposed to be the great apprentice to Palpatine. Yeah. He's meant and, to be Darth Vader, not always. Yeah. He was meant to be Darth Vader. Yeah, he was meant to be this great force ripping through the galaxy that everyone's supposed to be terrified of. I'm not saying people aren't terrified of him, but he was supposed to be the dark side's chosen one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the bitterness and the rage in which he has, and then you have this this point of view in in the Siege of Mandalore where he's sort of like he knows what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And he's almost, he's sort of, he's afraid of it in a way. 
Yeah. Like you have you have this amazingly choreographed um mo mo capped fight scene with him and Ahsoka. Yeah. And you also have the brilliant visual of you know as the glass shatters and he's holding out his hand. <laughs> yeah. But then perhaps the best part of it is when Ahsoka defeats him and he sort of begins to fall from the thing they're on. Yeah. He says like and Ahsoka like holds him with the force. He says like he says you should let me die. <laughs> yeah. And he like screams to let, uh, to let him die. Mm-hmm. And the fact that after such a tragic bit. Yeah. And it's just, it's just a villain that you feel, you feel sorry for, yet you know this guy's going to turn around and, and blind your master at any point. <laughs> yeah. As he does in Rebels. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just want I just wanted to have a little segment to appreciate Darth Maul in those in the Clone Wars and in Rebels. I feel Darth Maul from the get go, even before he gets before, yeah, before he becomes an actual character, and we just have the the Phantom Menace version of him. I feel like if people didn't like Phantom Menace and they were waiting for the second one, seeing how it's going to go, if it was revealed like before they came out that Darth Maul was coming back with like two robot legs in episode two, Attack of the Clones. Yeah. I feel like people would have been would have been far more on board all of a sudden. Like a few people would have been like actually like really excited out of nowhere because mm-hmm. it was it could have been a great little arc done in the news and not in a TV show. People don't people do talk about it, but I don't feel like it's pop culture as much as the movies are. Mm. Uh, so I feel like it's always kind of a a kind of a meta thing where he is a character that should have been the greatest enemy of all time and became this pathetic creature who's just going off and in, into rage and his life, spoilers, ends with him consumed consumed by rage and just dying at the hands of his old enemy because he couldn't get over his old enemy, his old problems and old issues that he had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like kind of like works in a meta way of like, he was going to be this great trilogy, trilogy defining villain in the prequel trilogy, and he ended up being the guy that ended, the guy that had no dialogue and died, died at the end of the first movie. Um, so it's kind of a weird. Um, you feel it not in the sense of not only in the sense of the character in the world, but also outside the world. You kind of like, yeah, you were meant. You were like you were going to be the big bad for like this entire trilogy. Or yeah. Um, so like you kind of get both kind of aspects to it, um, which is a nice thing that I don't think was really planned, but was just a nice little cherry on top of like mm-hmm. I, I get it on the sense of like not just the story that I'm watching, but also the actual story that I'm living in, like the real life. Um, yeah, <laughs> he's a good villain. Oh yeah, he really is. Um, Do you have of... a final villain? Um, yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna go for. A pretty recent one that's kind of been pretty popular for a while now. I kind of use it as a great example. Uh, Killmonger from Black Panther. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah. He's a. He's kind of that. A perfect, pretty much perfect example for me of a, a villain that is could easily be the hero of the story if we just change perspectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a character who doesn't really spend. We don't really get a lot of time within the first. The first kind of. The half, I would say. Um, he's kind of the background henchman for a lot of it. But as the story progresses, we kind of see him become his own 
his own leader and his own plans kind of form into an overall plan that kind of he kind of takes over the story halfway through out of nowhere mm. um, and for me it's always really worked in the sense that he comes in and <laughs> the filmmaking's on the nose but it's good you know in the sense that the camera literally goes from being upside down to uh, it goes not it goes from being level to being upside down when he when he enters the room and goes into, goes into the throne and it's kind of like we're seeing the other side to the actual story that we're watching and it's amazing to me that the story isn't just bad guy comes in and makes things go bad it's a bad guy or it's a, a character that comes in who has ideals that align with different people than what we've been following so like people people that we've known the entire story to be good guys who haven't seen eye to eye to black with eye to eye with black panther are now are are now on um black uh Killmong. um and it's not seen as a it's not seen as a um, oh no the, the bad guys come in and made everything real bad it's more so persons come in with a different viewpoint in hours and he's inciting a lot of um support because people believe in him and in a lot of ways what you're saying isn't entirely wrong and we should probably look into that after we get him out because he's going to do some horrible things um because he has a really good outlook and what wakanda can do but the way he wants to do it is just completely homicidal <laughs> in a lot of ways it's not so much kind of an evening of power it's more so taking over and having all the power um and it's not so much a kind of a equilibrium as much as, as much as it's a, as much as it's kind of a a rage fueled uh, attack um we even know that rage fuel attack is built upon real issues that are happening under everyone's noses um and yeah i feel like he's a a great modern villain for the sense that he isn't just the villain he is also a character that happens to be just happens to be opposed to the actual protagonist um and in the end he got what he wanted in a certain light um and similar to spider-man 2 even though yes we do beat him up and it's kind of the, weak, the weakest part of that film for me the, the end finale beat him up sort of thing mm-hmm. um, we do get a conversation with him where when he when killmonger decides to die because it's not worth living if he hasn't got if he has to be living, living, living in bondage, he says, um, which is an interesting idea that I feel like is handled very well throughout the entire movie, and it's worth it by the time we get to the end, where we feel the weight of his death more than we feel the weight of the idea that we've won. It's more so this guy's died, and it's a shame. Um, and from that, we get the ending of the film, which is we see uh, Killmonger's dream fulfilled, but in a much healthier way. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like seeing if the villain's going to come into your movie and be an opposing force, it should be a force that should change the hero from the inside out. And not yeah. just, not just like an external threat, but also kind of a, you, you need to decide what you want to be, and this villain's going to help you do it, but you won't see that until the very end, <laughs> sort of thing. Um, and yeah, it's a, great, it's a great performance as well. It's a great design as well. I love the little the scars and the armor that he has. The CGI is a bit too much in the end, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't really like the idea of him just wearing the same suit as Black Panther, but it's a different color. Um, but yeah, I do overall think that there's a, there's a great modern villain, and I 
yeah, I just want to see more. If we're going to have more villains in these superhero movies that are going to be um, the main crux of the story, I want it to be more like him and not not stuff like I don't know, Whiplash or. <laughs> or um, oh God! What a comparison. Yeah, well, even also to a certain extent, sort of like ob- external obstacles to get over. We've got to have weight. Yeah, it's got to be some sort of learned lesson in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I just think he's a great villain. Would you agree? That he's I'd a... agree. I think it's one of one of probably one of Marvel's best. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, particularly with again, you had that clash and the symmetry between him and T'Challa. Yeah. In that, you know, if if maybe one one slight decision or one path was different, he would be the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I, I think it's a fantastic villain. Yeah, and I just like the idea that it's kind of becoming a trend almost to have a villain that's kind of a a hero in their own story now, and you can understand them a lot more. And I feel like that's a great a great new way of going forward in the sense that I don't think I don't think every movie needs a sympathetic villain. But having the awareness awareness to have your art or whatever you're putting into popular culture to be aware of the side of that aware of the fact that there's two sides to a story is a great mm. way going forward um, yeah he's a, he's a great villain and I I hope we get more like him in not just Marvel but like anywhere in terms of blockbusters and villains and all these sort of things um, yeah definitely yeah <laughs> it's good and, yeah I think that's a good point to conclude on yeah okay um, we, yeah, again we haven't we haven't sort of mentioned Ledger's Joker and Darth Vader Thanos Hannibal Lecter and all these sort of things. Yeah, or Hans Gruber. Yeah. Mainly because, you know, uh, we, I suppose we wanted to talk about ones that maybe, not necessarily underrated, but ones that we feel we could say something about. Can add, like, a new conversation about, at least, in some ways. Yeah, so, and I, I think we've done that. Yeah, I've had fun with this one. <laughs> yeah, it's been good. It's been good to just explore and understand what exactly it is we look for in a villain. Yeah. And why certain ones just appeal to us. Mm-hmm. Compared to the, the kind of boring ones that kind of go into the sidelines of like, oh yeah, he was in the movie. <laughs> just a thing in the plot. Yeah, he was, he was there. <laughs> mm. yeah. So, yeah. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Mm-hmm. Um, if you'd like more, be sure to follow us. Mm-hmm. You can even leave a review if you wanted, then be much appreciated. It helps that a lot. You can follow us on Instagram at the uh, Marvelous Cinema Podcast or on Twitter at Cinema Marvelous. Mm-hmm. We're currently rolling through reviews of Star Wars. We're going to be moving on to maybe some horror type things. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> later on. Um, so, yeah, we hope, we hope you can join us over there. Mm-hmm. For now, though, you've been listening to the Marvelous Cinema Podcast, and we greatly appreciate that. I have been your co host, Matthew. And I've been your co-host, Henry. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. Have a good day. Yeah, bye.